Reading Room, a literary podcast devoted to the works of Appendix A. Here we open the library doors of the Sanctum Socorro to you. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum Reading Room. Whether you are new to the literary world of Appendix N, a diehard fan of the genre, or just tuning in to see how certain titles tie into a particular set of role-playing games, we invite you to join us as we dive into the history and influence of Appendix N. Uh, We'd like to open our library to you and inspire readers to explore these new worlds. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar with us, uh, I am Keeper Jet, and with me we have Keeper Bob. Evening, everybody. And tonight we are continuing our exploration of the women of Appendix N, and we have Margaret St. Clair's novel, The Shadow People. They came from underneath to take over the world. They had existed from time immemorial, hidden in a space warp far beneath the surface of the Earth. Until now, their only form of nourishment had been a strange hallucinogenic grain. Now they hungered for human flesh. The earth was to be their stockyards, mankind to be their meat. They called it under-earth. It was a kind of hell in reverse, a world of cold darkness and dread existing unsuspected beneath earth's surface, peopled by weird half-human creatures who had once been men and women. Aldridge found the fantastic entrance to it in his desperate search for Carol Jennings, the beautiful, mysterious girl that he loved. All he knew was that she had vanished into the other world and that he had to find her. He did find her, but she was strangely changed into an almost mindless automaton. Then he learned one more thing. Either he or she could escape to the normal world they had known, but not both. And only he could make the choice. That's the shadow people. I don't know if it's sheer nostalgia, because we covered this in our very first actual podcast episode. Right? So long ago. I dig this one. I dig this one a lot. And St. Clair really made an impression. I I loved the book then. I love it now. And it's actually worth noting that it's second in what has been described as a loose trilogy of uh, of books set in the near future in northern california there's uh, the dolphins of altair the shadow people and dancers of noyo are, are the three books and i don't know how connected they are but now i really want to read the others having reread this one i was just going to ask if you'd read either of the others you read like three times as fast as me, so you could have read the entire trilogy in the time it took me to review this one. <laughs> That's fair. I I did I did reread this book again in a couple hours this afternoon. So yeah, it, it, but it's it's such a great book. Now you noted that I think one of the other really fun things about this particular author is mm, I don't I don't want to say slow burn, but but her surrealism in oh reality. My, oh my God. Yeah. Um, this, this book just, it alters, right? I mean, you, you start in Berkeley, California. It's, it's Berkeley in like late sixties. Yeah. Yeah. So everything is, is like normal. And then all of a sudden you're in the underworld of the elves that are either black elves or green elves or gray elves. And, and then and gray then dwarves. Well, no, there there was gray elves, and then there is the gray dwarf. Sorry, singular. Yes, and, and then and then then you're back in Berkeley, except there's like flying police robots. I mean, 
I don't know. Do you want to talk about the author first or the story? <laughs> Let's talk about the author first, just because. Uh, I could go either way on that one. Let's, but... let's, let's talk about the author first. So, so Margaret Sinclair was born um, Ava Margaret Neely. And here's an interesting fact for those of you who were paying attention last week. She was born February 17th, 1911, a year to the day before Andre Norton, who was born on February 17th, 1912. Um, okay. and, and Margaret St. Clair passed away in 1995. She had a master of arts in Greek classics from Berkeley university, which, you know, Greek Berkeley. Cla- class- okay. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. that was like in the thirties or something, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. She wrote under Margaret St. Clair, Idris Seabright. And I think one of my favorite pen names of all time now, Wilton Hazard. That just that just sounds like someone from Mountain Monsters. I'm sorry. That just sounds like a good old boy from Appalachia running around with a shotgun. Um, fair point. Fair point. In 1964, um, she was cited by Analog Magazine as one of the most unappreciated writers in science fiction, which is sad, right? I, and even today, a lot of people aren't familiar with her work. That that's very true. Um, you know, this falls under the same category as Andre Norton, who we discussed last month, mm-hmm. and having to use those pen names simply because it was a male-dominated field, and they wouldn't have been taken seriously had they not used said pen names. They would not have gotten as far as they did, et cetera. Well, to uh, be fair, we worked a particular word out of my system before we went to air, but uh, she really didn't care. <laughs> Um, Margaret Sinclair was a, was a very liberated woman for the time. And, uh, and she was, yes. Um, t- the tales of the nudist colony with her husband. I'm just like, I, I could deal without that. That's cool. Uh, but Berkeley, you know, um, mm-hmm. there are 130 short stories that I found, uh, by, uh, St. Clair herself, but four of those were penned under the name of Wilton Hazard. Wilton! 21 under Seabright. And it's kind of become a personal obsession to collect everything that I can that has the name. Um, of those, of those 21 stories published under Seabright alone, there are 29 different translations Um Think of the top shelf of the DCC catalog, if you will. There's Spanish, French, German, Italian, Swedish. Oh, you don't have don't a have Swedish, Swedish licensee yet. yet. No. Yet. <laughs> Someone get on that. Someone get on that. Well, and it's kind of funny and maybe a little sad that when we're searching used bookstores, it is far more common for us to find short stories by Idris Seabright than it is for us to find books by Margaret Sinclair. Um. Yes. Same can be said for Wellman, though, and a lot of them even. Yeah. Uh, one of the quotes that I found uh, from Sinclair herself, St. Clair, my bad, uh, from St. Clair herself was, unlike most pulp writers, I have no special ambitions to make the pages of the slick magazines. I feel that the pulps, at their best, touch a genuine folk tradition and have a balladic quality which the slicks lack. Nice. And that that just tells me, you know, yeah, screw you guys, do what you're gonna do. All all the Ellisons out there, even even the Vances, you know, I, I'll be over here writing my stuff, which is unique and original. And maybe I don't get all the splatter pages, but it's gonna be quality stuff either way. Well, and that, that's not to throw a slight to anybody, but no. We know that Ellison just kept churning them out. Weird Uncle Harvey. Yep. Yeah. Um, but you know, her life experiences really color her books, um, including this one, right? I mean, she spent time in nudist colonies. Her her uh, views on nudity certainly come to play in this book because nudity is very casual when it happens. There's There's literally nothing yeah. sexual about the nudity in this book when they talk about it. It just is. And you know, that in and of itself is a really refreshing change. 
and I say refreshing. When was this book written? 69, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then add to that, um, she and her husband were both initiated into Wicca by Raymond Buckland. And I as a matter of fact, she took the name uh, <laughs> Frenica, Frenica. And uh, her works, certainly you can see the influence of, of Wicca and other magic systems that were really in vogue at the time, the way they work through complete with the, uh, the ritual towards the end of the story. So she really, she, she led an interesting life. And as that filtered into her books, it made them more interesting as well. Um, if anybody is interested in a short story that you don't actually have to read, uh, by Margaret St. Clair, you can check out one of the episodes of Rod Serling's Night Gallery, The Boy Who Predicted Earthquakes. It's actually kind of fun. Like you watched a, that uh, after, after we read this the first time. Yeah. There's actually, there's a second one too called Brenda about a girl that finds a, a, a like swamp monster sort of thing. And the monster in Brenda its appearance as described in her story inspired a comic character called the heap, which in turn inspired swamp thing and man thing from Marvel and DC. So if you like any of those swamp monster comic books, it started with Margaret St. Clair and her short story, Brenda. Um, Besides the uh, there's two, two of her books are cited in appendix and in the original appendix and, uh, the Shadow People and Sign of the Labrus. And in fifth edition, they cite Change the Sky and Other Stories. So they cite a short story collection of hers for fifth edition. Whoa, I didn't. Okay. Uh, are our listeners with me on this? I I have to admit, I didn't know that fifth edition changed Appendix N. Well, they've added, they've added material and especially for authors that were just cited by name with no titles, they went, they, they made sure to, to cite titles to make that a little bit more approachable for people, but it's interesting as as opposed to just Saberhagen. (laughs) Yes. Or Or Jack Williamson or Lee Brackett, right? There's, there's a whole lot of stuff there. Yeah. Speaking of women and appendix N. Right. So shall we then move to the story? Um, Sure. I just want to address one comment in our Twitch feed here. Uh, DM Jeremy says that Jen and Bob are well-read and I feel dumb here. Um, I'm going to loll with you, Jeremy, because I feel dumb too until I read the book. And And you know, since we give everyone a month to plan ahead for it and well, I should say this is show number two in this particular series. Um, we're going to be giving you a chance to read what we're covering next month at the end of this show. And you can, yeah, you know, well, that page and- through it, be on the same page as me. I'm never going to get on the same page as Bob. <laughs> well, that and, and in all honesty, until we did the first episode of Sanctum Secorum, where we covered this book, I had never read anything by Margaret Sinclair. So there is, it, there, there's a lot of stuff out there. I don't, I don't think you're dumb, DM Jeremy. I think you might've read some stuff that I haven't and vice versa is all. Yeah, that's all it is. You're so sweet. <laughs> well, there's a lot. I don't know if you've noticed. There's, there's so a lot books. of books back there. <laughs> so many books my yeah. to read pile shifts and we both die in our sleep send help <laughs> send shelves send more shelves yes yes that okay uh well this play this story takes place i don't know it, it kind of takes place in the near future but it also takes place Back in the 60s? It, well, it, kind it, of... it, it takes place in the near future from when it was written, right? It was released in 69, takes place okay. in the near future of 1969. And it's set in Northern California, starting the Berkeley area. But, I mean, he's staying at the Shasta Inn, right? We've been up to Mount Shasta in the Anderson area. Um, and the vibe that, Yeah, that's is, a bit north, but yeah. And the vibe of this book is so very different from most of the stuff 
that we've read on Appendix N, right? It's normally it's That's science true. fiction or it's fantasy. And this starts out as almost like a mystery. My girlfriend is missing what has happened to her. And then it's this underground fantasy adventure. And then it is this sci-fi political commentary thriller. There's occult philosophy woven through it. There's elements of horror. Jen, yes, if you had to definitely. categorize this, where would you where would you shelf this book? Um, maybe fantasy and horror fiction, as opposed to fantasy and science fiction. That's that's fair. I guess for me, it, the book almost seems to be broken into three parts, and the the first part of the book is definitely fantasy. He is, he's living in Berkeley. He has mm-hmm. a, a, the fight with his girlfriend. She disappears and he ends up going into the under earth, right? Up until the point where he slides down there. Um, I would almost call that the prologue set in modern time. Totally fair. Totally. Because fair. he does everything that we would do if a loved one went missing. Yeah, he yes. asks his friends, goes to the police, checks out the local haunts, he goes to the coffee shop, he goes to the diner. And there's let's 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 talk and, about him going to talk to his friends for a second though, because there's some real foreshadowing there. When he goes when when he he essentially hitchhikes his way up to see the two friends of theirs, and he thinks he thinks that Carol might even be there, and they're gone. They supposedly had, you know gone essentially to the city for a week but they had they had vanished people around him were vanishing and so there's that kind of foreshadowing that that she's no longer there right from the get-go yeah um it's really interesting because since this was the first book that i really dove into as far as appendix n goes because i i am that noob dm jeremy okay Uh, (laughs) um she has more dice reading, than I do. Don't let her kid you. Reading the, I didn't say I wouldn't kill you at the table. Uh, I said I'm a noob at Appendix N. Reading these other stories afterwards, uh, Creep Shadow Creep by A. Merritt. The beginning and and meat of that story is set in a doctor's common, you know, current timeline. And anytime I read something like that, I actually end up coming back around here to St. Clair and to this book in particular. Uh, having read uh, Sign of the Labrus, Labrus, your mileage may vary, um, I don't get the same feeling from that that I do the shadow people because it it's almost so mundane at the beginning and it just it's a slight decline into the weird like reality just slowly decays but the focus of it is the camera that carol leaves behind and one of the colored lenses is cracked and there might be a sign of a struggle there is some like dried slime mark on the floor think he described it as shiny and glittering and and the police and the police really aren't taking him seriously because she was probably on drugs right. and just ran off it, right. it was the 60s after all and honestly even after we got down into the 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 underneath i still felt like we were reading something current you know not fantasy not really sci-fi just more horror and weird and i found myself wondering until darn near the end of the book why did this make it onto appendix n what was there that inspired the the author so much there there's actually been a lot of talk about the the elves in the shadow people being one of the one of the major inspirations for the drow these underground light hating cannibalistic elves, which, you know, I suppose it's sort of like chuds, but, but elves, um, but that would be humanoid. So they are, they're chuds, they're cannibalistic humanoid underground dwellers. Um, but there's been a lot of discussion about how that may very well have been one of uh, Gary Gygax's inspirations. Uh, 
And then you get to the whole, he go, he's led down into the basement by a woman named Faye. And that, that, that name is important later. F-A-Y, uh, was it? Yes. Yeah. But, you know, it might as well have been F-A-E by the end of the book. But she leads him down to the basement. She's like, okay. And he's, you know, they're feeling and smelling for odd air currents. And there's this, this crack that he didn't see. And he follows that. And he ends up in another cellar. And then another, and just the way he sort of creeps his way along until he ends up in the cavern system. It's... It, it's almost like well sort of like a labyrinth but also sort of like moving through moving through like the various planes of the abyss almost having to push through the veil just a little bit yeah and i I think by basement i i think there's something very kind of uh greek mythology about that right as he is descending (laughs) i was wondering how that was going to tie back in (laughs) he's descending through the layers and and that is is how he ends up in the underworld and and you're right. I mean, the, that first part is sort of the prologue. And then we have essentially part one of the book, which is his search for Carol. And now you mentioned different phases of the book. Like now we get into the fantasy part and now we have this part where magic is mentioned. Um, but I need to throw a rebuttal in there ahead of time because magic was mentioned early on in like the first or second chapter most certainly yeah because almost as a throwaway because he was quote-unquote scrying through the glass or the bottle of sherry and it mentions that he tried scrying before using a and and i quote from the book a regulation crystal ball at a party (laughs) And that just makes you really throw it away and not put any stock into it. Well, and and as he describes it, he doesn't really put stock in it either. Until he starts experiencing the effect once he's pushed through that final barrier into the other world. Even and even before the then, because disorientation. He he, he scries for her before before he speaks to Faye, and he mm-hmm. has that image of of the, the rushing water that he thinks is the California coast, the but obviously, clouds yeah, and... but obviously it isn't. And uh, and Video Cemeteries it pegs it. You know, Hood describes him as a modern day Orpheus. Nice. You know, that is that is okay. Out of there, um, and and it's also worth noting that I think. Grunk Helaman wins the this is where I would shelf the book under psychedelic was it psychedelic poly sci-fi fantasy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh to anybody popping in just a little bit late in our mm, discussion. I do not call it a book report. <laughs> uh we are discussing The Shadow People by Margaret St. Clair as part of my fascination with. Uh, digging into the women of Appendix N and those who inspired them. So since Video Cemetery mentioned that, um, now's a good time to ask, I suppose, to our live viewers, who would be your favorite character from this book? Would it be Dick Aldridge, our protagonist who, who can scry and is obviously very determined uh carol his elfin girlfriend you've got faye who, knows who really the is to, the elfin girlfriend <laughs> knows the way to the under earth and has some elven heritage clearly uh carl hood as mentioned uh kind of, kind of the villain of the story green elf stock is how you listed him he mentions uh, that he is a green elf stock and then we've got the gray dwarf i think that moniker is, is pretty who is our secondary yeah and and that's the thing right so so carl hood is sort of the villain for the first two parts of the book right the the entire initial under earth and then the majority of when when he returns to above ground, 
Carl Hood is sort of pulling the strings in the background. And while we're we're introduced to the gray dwarf in the first part of the book, it is essentially the final part of the book where he really ascends to be the big bad villain of the story. Well, and, and Hood is the one who asks Aldrich, have you considered the possibility that she may not be on the skin of this world at all? And he is the first to ask that. That's that's what's really kind of great because then Faye asks Who that. Who asks same that? <laughs> well, yeah. That's fair. Right? That is, that, that is totally that's fair. definitely that that decay in out of normality and into the weird. Yes, I, I dig it. And and you know, once once he gets once he gets to uh, or once Aldrich gets to the to the under earth, you know, how does he get there? He has to cross, he has to cross that, that, that stream, that, that almost river that is, is new in its formation because otherwise it would be much deeper, but he states there is always water at the boundary of the under earth and the above, which also, yeah, I mean, that's, that's coming straight out of mythology. I mean, it, 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 this draws so heavily on what, she knows and it it weaves in so beautifully um for me i think i would have to say that Faye is my favorite character um dick aldridge is interesting but for for me Faye, who starts out you know it's just she's the waitress at the shasta inn or she's the chambermaid at the shasta inn mm-hmm. and then there's this whole long backstory that is revealed that she grew up in south carolina because there's entrances to the under earth everywhere and that she is of elven blood and she played with the elves as a child oh my god there's just this 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 torrent of fascinating revelations about the character at the midway point in the book. And with this being written in the first person point of view from Dick Aldridge's point of view, I am old fashioned and I'm being taken on this uh, journey of discovery with the main character. So I really have to be in his corner. Um, He doesn't make too many stupid decisions except for, you know, eating the adder corn when Faye told him not to eat or drink while he was down there, but the sword didn't tell him not to. So there's this sword we should probably talk about. Merlin's sword. So let's let's mm-hmm. talk about that for a minute, right? Because all of a sudden, like a third of the way or halfway through the book, let's all, all of a sudden halfway in is a reference to Merlin, and that that is a little jarring at, at first. Um, it's like okay, you know, we've got uh, Arthurian, Arthurian, and then they they kind of discuss that no, the Merlin that is referenced in the Under Earth is not based on the Merlin of Arthurian legend. He is a being from several planes higher, and the Merlin of Arthurian legend is merely a reflection of him. Which could go either any. Uh, mythology route there uh i i'm i'm thinking it's less jarring to me than uh the kind of futuristic earth that they found themselves in once they okay, finally flying police got robots really kind of took me aback when we got to part two I, because I, mentioning merlin in the scheme of things you know that's the same guy that used the regulation crystal ball <laughs> Like I, you I, do. I throw no stones at that. Uh, no, but the sword, it it's one of the more interesting swords in fiction, I think, based on what it does and what it symbolizes. And yeah, and what it represents, where its magic comes from. It is crystalli- crystallized will. And it hums almost a purring sound when he goes in the correct direction because in dcc terms it's not smart enough to be telepathic yeah well yeah it's <laughs> but yeah no it, 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 it that actually would be the, the esp or the the telekinetic aspect well, and it, it yeah, warns it warns telepathic. 
it warns Aldrich of actual danger. And so it doesn't warn him about go eating or drinking things because as we learn, he is of elfin heritage. And so that's not really a danger to him. People trying to kill him. That's a danger. Eating adder yeah. corn is not. Um, I, I mean, I'm still fascinated unless by, by you're told, corn. unless you're told by your guide to not eat or drink anything while you're down there. And then you forget it's phosphorescent food. Don't eat it. it <laughs> Gee, that, don't that's eat, not a tough lesson. Okay. Don't eat or drink anything while, while you're in the underworld. Hmm. Gee, shades of mythology there. Mm-hmm. Too bad. Too, it it only could have been more obvious if he had been traveling with a pomegranate, right? Instead, it was yeah. a tuna fish sandwich. But and and it also kind of buzzed at him to make sure that he maintained consciousness, and that was a detail I didn't catch the first time around because I so was not interested in the sword <laughs> the first time I read this. Uh, well, and it's weird, right? I mean, he finds the sword in one of the cellars on the way. He's like, well, you know, these, these things are attacking, which he later, which he reveals that he later learned were sort of the animal companions of, of the silent people, because they're not called the shadow people in the book. Uh, Jones, right. They're referred to as the silent people because they are. The other world dwellers are silent. Yes. yes. Uh, and he's like, which well, maybe is I weird. Like a, an old hacksaw blade or something. And what's he come across? No, he comes across a long sword hanging in a, in, in, in someone's basement. Now I can't yeah. throw stones. I mean, I've, I've got several stores, you know, storage but, in my walk-in closet, but I don't hang them in the garage. Right. I mean, that's just not the place. For them. And did they ever, uh, I, I don't recall the detail on that one. Did they ever find out who's, building or house that was found no in? They, they never really detail much about the cellars and above ground areas that he, he traverses although hood claims now now hood is is not what i would call a reliable source but hood <laughs> claims that he that it was his sword and he had placed it there for mm -hmm. aldridge to find I, I i think he was lying of course but right and that is one of the things that brought up. Now, is there well, a... That, that's a good thing that, that St. Clair does in her stories, though. Every now and then you'll find this little hanging plot thread that you kind of wish was closed up tidily, but also by leaving it open, that, that allows you to explore it even further as a what-if situation. And that's really successful with things like horror fiction and, and fantasy. You don't always want everything spelled out to the letter, right? No, no, you don't. And she allows you to sort of fill in the gaps. Now, granted, there's some pretty big gaps, right? Again, I left Berkeley and now there's flying police robots. And the hills of Berkeley have been bulldozed by robot bulldozers that were poorly programmed in their punch cards. Yeah. Now, Video Cemetery comments that that was the Earth of three years into the future. What the hell happened in three years? Right. I, I, mean, I mean, think of the last decade we've lived through. Yeah. Like now, Where's what, my what, flying cars? <laughs> when, when I was in grade school a long time ago, it was remember kind that of... Far back, Bob? You, you, you just stop being mean. It was going to be like 25. Actually, yeah, it was going to be 25 years before we had flying cars. Right. So they were talking on the year 2000 flying cars and uh, flying police say. robots in 1972 is a pretty big jump. But there's but then when he comes up, let's let's talk about the second portion of the book for a minute. Let's let's move past cannibalistic elves in, in the Underdark. And he gets back to Berkeley, and it is truly a police state where everyone has to wear their ID discs around their necks. Um, we never find out exactly what happened to get to this stage. No, but it's like all of the trees in Berkeley have been cut down so that people can't hide behind them and attack passersby. It, it is, it's a Again, very... One of, one of the hanging plot threads. It's a very dark dark view 
of a very near dystopia, right? I mean, three years in the future and all of a sudden, well, and mm-hmm. it's, I guess it's kind of prescient too. I mean, th- this was released in 16, in 1969, the summer of love. And then you get into the seventies and the riots in the seventies were horrific. And there's, there's riots in this story. There's civil unrest. Commentary. Oh my goodness. Yes. And, you know, it, when, when they're looking to escape and they're being offered safe passage through out of the United States and into, into Vancouver. And that's just one more way that the silence of the underdwellers contrasts so greatly with what they came back to. Yeah. And, and so now, you know, he is, he has escaped because he, he manages to, to free Carol but he ends up trapped because he's tricked into, into eating corn dust right? through a handshake and tainting his own food. He manages to finally escape. He gets up into this world where everything has changed. He he's reunited with Faye, who now we know is truly Faye, because she eventually says, screw this. I'm going into the under earth because I'm not dealing with this anymore. So he reunites with Carol, but to do that, he has to defeat Hood. But he doesn't defeat Hood. And that, and that was a real, that was, that was kind of a real twist, right? I mean, he, he's there, he's ready, he's ready to confront Hood and Hood has already been taken, is, is already dying because he's been taken out by the true villain of the story, the Grey Dwarf. And, uh, yeah. and then the gray dwarf wants to steal Aldridge's body so that he can walk on the surface safely. And looking over at our chat stream, uh, Sky2 says the fleeing to Canada part was kind of Russian. Well, and uh, it had already been going on, right? Yeah, it was 69. People had already been fleeing to Canada. So, yeah, you're right there. And uh, Skunkworks, I, I totally have to agree with you. The phrase don't eat phosphorescent food isn't very DCC, but this is pre-DCC. So, you know, if you want to eat phosphorescent food, there are three different versions of adder corn in the Sanctum Secorum episode companion for episode one. <laughs> Wait, yeah, that was a lot of fun. And, and yeah, you never leave robots to their own devices and, and get video cemetery mentions. Yes. Hood was a victim of elf shot. Which is in, in mythology. Okay, is always so I'm, I'm seeing the, the different influences then. Uh, it's just kind of wild to me that this is something that she pulled together and just that fantasy world is what was brought into the game. And I, I mean, I, I suppose there, there's well, enough but of then, the realism but, for all of us. But but that, well, hang on a second. Then you, you, you <laughs> want to talk about only only the fantasy element was brought into Dungeons and Dragons. I will remind you of Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, which had floating police robots. Not my favorite module. Uh, I'm aware there's a whole lot of empty rooms, but <laughs> but so that was that was also there. But I feel that besides the influences of her life experiences, besides the influence of her studies, I think that you can see the influence of some of the people that she read Um, because this feels, if any of you are familiar with William Hope Hodgson and like house on the borderland, for example, it, it, this is, this is very, (laughs) this is, is very much in that, in that feel of how it transitions from the ordinary to the bizarrely surreal and dreamlike, because that's really what this feels like. It doesn't, it doesn't feel psychedelic or crazy so much as it has this, this almost rippling dreamlike quality to it. And, and that is, that's very, that's very Hodgson. And she, she was also, she was a reader of Dunsany. And uh, she wrote, was it the man who sold rope to the Knowles <clears throat> is considered one of the best Dunsany pastiches of all time. And that's it's also one of the most reprinted. Yeah. But that's, that's her. I remember seeing that. 
So <laughs> yes, Sky Two, not my favorite module. Um, when it comes to sci-fi, I I would prefer Metamorphosis Alpha over D and D. There, that's out there. Uh, Bob, I've got a question for you then. Sure. Uh, since most of our viewers haven't read the book yet, uh, something for them to keep in mind as they do read. Would you consider this one a slow burn or a page turner? Hmm. Um, well, or I don't, are I, the two exclusive? Well, I, I don't. I don't think the two things are, are always mutually exclusive. But in this case, I would say it's it, it's not a slow burn. Things things get moving fairly quickly, um, and. It's like I said, I, I reread it today in about two hours this afternoon. It's everything for me is kind of a page turner once you start reading, but it is, it's, it's one of those things where once you start, I wouldn't bother putting it down. You just, just read it through um, one, because it moves at, at such a clip, especially because of the time it was written where they're not going to hang up on, on uh, major issues like describing everything. Um, so it reads pretty quickly, but also because of that, because there's not as many like hard details to lock onto, it's easier than if you put the book down to kind of forget things when you pick it back up. I think this is a book that is, that is best read in a sitting. And it's certainly a, a, I think a breezy enough read the, you know, it, it's not archaic language. It's not Gorman gassed. Um, it's, it's something you, that You're you, right. that's approachable. It's, it's not archaic language. Um, as I've been trying to collect the fantasy and science fiction magazines from the sixties and seventies that have Idris Seabright's name on them. I've also been kind of chewing through the Fritz Leiber pulps but i love it when they oh, look yeah. like you're in one and yeah really there's there's not a huge difference in the pacing and the language from that of liber sci-fi or of harlan ellison's pulps so it, it's nice and easy to get into mm-hmm. so I, I would definitely call it much more approachable than say dying earth <laughs> because i know a lot of our viewers and listeners have dying, dying earth had issues with the accessibility yeah it's it's not it, the language isn't as accessible and i think that that we're fortunate enough that we live in a time where reading this book we can do so with full hindsight so there's there's <laughs> things there's, there's things there's things in this book that were that would have been wholly alien to the mainstream readership of the time. Um, it be, it become what you are. You know, there, there's this whole Wiccan influence that in in modern culture you could be a devout Christian and still at least recognize pagan religions from philosophies. Um, you might not agree with them. You might not like them, but, but you will generally at least recognize them because they've been out there enough. They've been in movies, they've been books that are on TV. They're, they're everywhere. And so we have that additional accessibility there. That we do. Um, there's some chatter in the, in the chat box. Imagine that Jen uh, vocabulary. It's fun. About how accessible this book is as far as physically. It is It is not an easy find right now. The Kindle edition is no longer available. So the, really? The, no. So the ebook, uh, the ebook isn't out there right now. Um, I did, I did find an EPUB that I was able to read. They said it was just a preview, but I, I got the whole thing out of them uh, for free just in the past week, I should say. Well, and there's and some of some of her work is available on um, Project Gutenberg, things of that nature. But the actual book itself is not; it's not necessarily easy to find. Well, I shouldn't say it's not easy to find. You can go online. You can find it on Amazon. You're going to pay a premium for it. You are not going to readily find it in in just any used bookstore. 
Well, now that could honestly go for practically every title that appears on Appendix N these days, especially as we found in the past, you know, five, 10 years, you might have better luck finding it for an accessible price point from certain sellers on eBay or, Uh, but a lot of, but a lot of used bookstores have things like Liber, Vance, um, and even even most wine of them bar. have at least one. Yeah. And everybody has Andre Norton. <laughs> often, often at least a shelf of Andre Norton. Um, but yeah, so, so this is not this is not one of the easier books to to find locally. But yeah, on eBay or on Amazon or on uh, a Libris, you're gonna be able to find it without any issue. And it is it's find certainly worth it. <laughs> make a book club. It's it's certainly worth hunting it down, um, if only for the cover that has nothing to do whatsoever with the book inside, other than there's ding, a sword ding. on the cover. There is Isn't a sword. That, is that a Frazetta cover? Um, no. no I, I, it's kind of uh, surreal. Oh, I, I can't even think of the term for it because it's late and my brain has checked out, apparently. Uh, yeah, it has nothing to do no no it it, it really doesn't um i'm trying to remember who did the who did the cover art for it i off the top of my head i i can't remember now yeah y'all can search that but but yeah you have you have a quote here that that really struck you well Um, yeah there's there's a couple but um are are you talking about the you're talking about the quote about the book or the quote from the book from from yeah there's there's this feeling uh there's a feeling and theme of isolation that runs through the book and there is a a description which is what impressed me the most about the the incident was its noiselessness even in his pain the victim had been silent the four men had fled like figures in a dream I might have thought I had imagined them, except that they left ridges and dents in the sand. And this is a scene where, I mean, they are, someone is literally trying to rip the tongue out of this man's head, and he's being beaten and attacked, and it's all utterly silent. And and that just... Bears are weird. (laughs) Yeah, it it really, it it, again, it adds to that whole feeling of, of just dread and isolation. And it's just the quote that really struck me was after after Dick finally gets Carol back home and they're speaking with Faye after they've had a a little bit of time to readjust to being home in this new world. And Carol says, why did they kidnap me? Oh, I know they like human flesh, but why did they select me? And Faye responds. Partly because you were disturbed and upset. Unhappy thoughts draw them. Partly because you were in an accessible location. Yeah, that, that's, that's right. And the el- that's enough to write a module on. The elves of the underworld are the monsters in the closet, right? I mean, they just, or like, you know, if you've ever gone into an old basement, you've gotten the creeps. Well, maybe that's because there's, there's a passage there, a, a traveled way to the underearth. Um, yeah it's yeah good stuff it's it's good stuff it's a great read um i I, high highest recommendations read if you haven't read it already read the shadow people by margaret st Clair. uh you've been missing out if you know somebody who has a copy ask to borrow it maybe we could get some sort of network going on where we can just mail it to the next person and so on right i'm cool with that and hey, you know, I think, uh, well, I can't make any guarantees that by the time uh, any particular individual gets to the booth, I'm pretty certain that there are going to be at least two copies of this available at uh, the Goodman booth at Gen Con. So I know we've picked up, we've picked up, we've picked up a couple of them. So, uh, so there's a possibility, but you know, there's a lot of books and a lot of people. So no guarantees, no promises. Yeah. Uh, so speaking of books and our next book, 
Is our Twitch mistress available to pop a poll up for us? And it and, and like magic, it pops up. If you click on the little down arrow next to it in the stream chat, there, we'll we'll go through these a little bit because yeah, which novel should we read for next month? Uh, we have the the Sword of Rhiannon by Lee Brackett, which was nineteen fifty three. And she is the uh, the only appendix, uh, the only woman on the appendix end list who we have not we have not yet covered um, in this particular series. Mm-hmm. Uh, Andre Norton's Witch World, which is nineteen sixty three, ten years later. Okay, mm-hmm. now we did uh, we did just cover Andre Norton, but that is sort of the series that she is is really known for. Um, they aren't necessarily in that order in this uh, particular poll, I believe. Uh, number two on the list for our viewers is Dolphins of Altair, which is, I guess, the prequel to this well, one. It's, loosely, it, it's it's described as a loose series, a loose trilogy of books that take place in the near future in Northern California. Not having not having read it, I don't know beyond that. But we might have more. We might have more flying police robots. Yeah, um, I don't see any of our listeners. Uh, checking any answers on this uh, poll yet. So we better blaze through here. We've got Frankenstein, which is said to be the first science fiction novel written by Mary Shelley, of course. And then there's the, the one that Jen wants. In the year to pick. 1818. The one that Jen wants everyone to pick is <laughs> Lady Margaret Cavendish's The Blazing World from 1666, which is often said to be the first work of fantasy fiction. The, I might say the Bible, but we'll, we'll go with the blazing one. It's uh, harsh, Bob. It's said to be one of the main influences to uh, Lord Dunsany's work as well. Which, and, if this, if the Shadow People was influenced by Lord Dunsany, I... I would love to read his, you know, it's like reading who inspired Poe. I, I I want to keep backtracking and all that. And, and it might be too soon. And I get that. Um, if not, that's cool too. I haven't clicked on my vote yet because I'm trying to keep on. Yeah. We all know what your vote is. And I've make sure. <laughs> <laughs> I, but I, I don't want to taint the waters. Um, it looks like we're actually leaning towards Brackett right now. And I'm Interesting. a huge, huge fan of Brackett. Lee Brackett, um, I believe we did. Uh, oh, shoot. It's um, the, not the star. Was it the Starless Sea? The Sunless Down down Upon the uh, Sunless no, Sea? No, 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 no. The, yeah. uh, no, you're thinking that was uh, the book you're thinking of was one we by Lynn Carter. Thank you. Uh, we, the one with all the stairs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've, we've read a bit of Brackett and I've actually read quite a bit of Brackett. I, I greatly enjoy her as an author. Um, Is the sort of Rhiannon actually on Appendix N? The, so Lay Brackett is just Lay Brackett on Appendix N. However, <laughs> for, however, for fifth edition, the sort of Rhiannon is the book they cite. So it made it there eventually. And it's worth pointing out that of the three women who are actually on the appendix end list, Leigh Brackett is the youngest, being born in 1915. That That's just still so bizarre. Uh, I mean, we were limited to so many choices here. Otherwise, I would have thrown Zena Henderson on the list or, uh, yeah, some some of the other women who have influenced Appendix N authors. And yeah, well, we'll get to that though. We've got a and, few months to play with this. We, we have all the time we want to play with it. And, uh, and, and so we can, we can certainly get there. It's looking like. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, Gabriel Kroon owns a copy of Rihanna, but has never read it. Give, give them a good reason to read it. Well, means yeah, I gotta go find a book. That was gonna be my <laughs> vote anyway. So, oh, so if I were to click on that one, and you, yeah, that would still not weigh the votes enough. You would so, even my vote. So up. right now, 
So, so while while we enjoyed Shadow People, uh, a return to Margaret Sinclair next month is is not what any of our live uh, viewers want, as that has zero votes. I told you we should have stacked the deck and thrown in Idris Seabright titles too. Wilton Hazard. We should have just <laughs> it should have been a choice between Mar- you know, Margaret Sinclair, Idris Seabright, and Wilton Hazard. I don't know. I, I hear the name. I think either Dukes of Hazard or Manly Wade Wellman. I, I'm, I'm not sure where that connection comes in, but neither one is a woman of Appendix N. Technically, I suppose. Well, actually, Dang at, it. The, at the time, while, while people today will, will immediately connect Idris to Idris Alba, um, historically speaking, Idris was often a woman's name. And so that was a that was her. Yes, I'm a woman, but I'm using a pen name, pen name, as opposed to Wilton Hazard. So, and she uh, she didn't write a whole lot under Wilton Hazard. She certainly did not. Before. She she made no bones about being a woman who was an author. And uh, yeah, and even just the the simple photo that the Wikipedia page has, you could just tell. There's so much personality there. There's fierceness. There's a uh, nice way of saying it on air. Uh, DGAF vibes. Uh, <laughs> and definitely, yes, I'm a woman. Don't put me in a pantsuit. <laughs> I, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And yeah, I got to respect the hell out of that. She was. She was, she was a, a very liberated woman for the time. And uh, she just didn't take any crap. Well, I mean, I suppose she took some because she did raise and sell dachshunds, but so, but that's a different type of crap. So. Dachshund, okay. Yeah, she did. She she she, yeah. she bred and sold sold wiener dogs. Yes, she did. She also enjoyed her. Crap. All right. And so she was it, married to a professor, and our poll's almost over. We could probably call it. I, I think we got. We will uh, next month. All right. Having. The, uh, the Sword of Rhiannon by Lee Brackett. I'm, I'm excited. I, I'm, any excuse to read more Lee Brackett is fine with me. And we will be at the same time and the same day next month. It'll be the third Tuesday. Yes, Tuesday. Uh, so it will be March 15th. And I like may or may week. not be more caffeinated. That's the week before Gary Con, isn't it? Yes, it is the uh it is approximately nine days before Gary Khan starts. So it is not the week of it is the week before you have your last weekend before you get all bundled up and vi- go up to visit Snowland. Yay! <laughs> and as Mr. Hogarth says, beware the Ides of March. Oh, yeah. Oh, is that what we get to look forward to? Yeah, we're reading bracket anyway. Okay. And uh, no, Skunkworks, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you to everyone that, uh, that has joined us live again this evening for the show. It's it's fun to to uh, actually be able to answer some questions and, and respond to comments. It's, it's very nice. To those of you who are listening to the show afterwards, when it's live next time not pot no well i mean eventually someone might be listening to this um you know i mean give it give it 50 years and they might find this on the internet archive and then you know maybe but uh but but those who are who are not listening to it live think about joining us live next time uh the the show is at 9 p.m eastern standard time and you can find us on the goodman games twitch channel goodman games official yes and so I think that's it for us for this evening. It probably should be. Oh, yeah. but wait, uh, one last question. Sure. Jen, did you like the book? <laughs> you haven't gotten this yet? You, know, uh, you, you haven't actually said it. <laughs> uh, you know, nobody's contributed bits yet to see how Bob really feels about it. So, <laughs> so I will say, yes liked the book uh, and not just for nostalgic value. I, I was actually happy to get a chance to go back to it. I, I don't think, I don't think people need to contribute bits to find out how I really feel about something until we get to like Paul Anderson's three hearts, three lions. 
and and then it's and, a free for all. Yeah. And and then it, then we can't be on the Goodman channel anymore because it will be family friendly. So. You know, <laughs> Fair point. Yes. So thank you again, everyone, for joining us this evening. And uh, we will see you next month as we do this all again and continue our exploration into the women of Appendix N and those that inspired them. Have a good night. Guys, have a great night. Sanctum Sequorum Reading Room has been a production of Sanctum Media.